Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome to the third installment of Hermeneutics Tuesday. Now, hermeneutics is kind of a big, scary word. It really just means your method of Bible interpretation, of answering the question, what does this passage mean? Now, in these episodes, I've been laying out some basic assumptions that can pave a really solid foundation for good, sound Bible interpretation. The first assumption is that the Bible is a divine book. It is 100% inspired by God. We can have complete confidence that every word of the original documents is exactly what God wanted to communicate. Now, those of us with a high view of the Bible's divine origin can forget sometimes that it was written and delivered through human agents who were real people living real lives and who had a real part to play in writing scripture. We've talked about how the Bible did not fall from heaven and there were no paranormal events that led to its writing. So it's a divine book written and delivered by human agents. And that leads us to our next really important foundational assumption, which is that the Bible is fundamentally an act of communication. And communication, like we talked about last time, is always, without exception, contextualized. Remember our example? Nobody puts baby in the corner. Well, this led us to one of the most important foundational assumptions for good sound Bible interpretation, and that is this. The Bible was written for us right? So it was written for every person in every generation for all time. It is living. It is active. It still speaks to us today. But it was not written to us. What I mean by that is that it was not written in any modern language. It wasn't written with our modern assumptions and our modern values and worldview in mind. And because of this, we cannot answer the question, what does it mean for us until we do the work and we seek an answer to the question, what did this passage mean for them? What did it mean for the original audience? Now, these days we have all these beautiful Bibles in amazing, highly readable English translations. Um, There are even some Bibles that are laid out kind of like a a beautiful high-end magazine, right? They're gorgeously illustrated and all the things. And, And so it's, it's so easy I think easier than ever to sit with our Bibles and it looks so fresh and modern. It reads so fresh and modern. We forget that it's not. It is speaking a fresh word to God's people, but it's not a modern book in any way, shape, or form. Now, I have a little illustration um, from Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. It's one of my 
favorite books that I discovered last year. Highly, highly recommend you pick up a copy. A lot of the things I'm saying in these segments are things you are going to find in his book. Now he talks about in 1963, there was a song, Puff the Magic Dragon, by folk artists Peter, Paul, and Mary. Now the chorus contains these lyrics. Puff the Magic Dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. Now, I did not sing it for you because I value our friendship and you don't need to hear me sing. <laughs> All right, so Dan Kimball talks about how the song was extremely popular, reached number two in the charts, but later the culture started to change and drug experimentation was becoming more and more prevalent. Well, in thinking of younger generations and all the drug experimentation that was going on, the song Puff the Magic Dragon was rumored to be way more than just a children's song. People began to interpret the lyrics based on their worldview and saw it as a song written about marijuana smoking. Newsweek magazine even did an article about this. So they began to see the song this way. Puff was an obvious metaphor for smoking pot. Autumn mist was understood to be a symbolic reference to the clouds of marijuana smoke, and the land of Hanali was interpreted as a reference to a Hawaiian village which was known for its particularly potent marijuana plants. Now, the writers of the song were not so happy about this. They came out and made a statement, said, you guys are crazy. The song has nothing to do with smoking pot. It really, truly is a cute children's folk song. <laughs> Peter Yarrow, one of the authors, said this in a public statement. He said, when Puff was written, I was too innocent to know about drugs. What kind of mean-spirited SOB would write a children's song with a covert drug message? End quote. Now think about it, you guys. If we can do this with things that were written relatively close to our time, how much more do we do this to ancient texts that are so far removed from our world and our cultural context? We do that to the Bible all the time because we often fail to do the work of answering the question, what did it mean? Oftentimes, that question is not even on our radar. A lot of us were never even taught to consider it or think critically about the original author and the original audience and what was going on um, at the time. It's so, so easy and natural to read our own worldview, our own values into whatever passage we're reading. Now, here's one of the big takeaways I want you to get from this particular episode. A passage can't mean something for us that it never would have meant for the original audience. Now, we might apply it a little bit different in our context, but the meaning, what the author was actually intending to communicate, like we don't get to come up with that. And it can't be something exclusive to our modern era. Now, one area where you see this so much is the area of 
Bible prophecy, specifically as it relates to people's thoughts and predictions regarding the end times. Apocalyptic literature, that genre, presents us with a whole slew of interpretive challenges. There's a lot of mystery, a lot of questions. It's highly image-based, right? And it's pulling from all sorts of Old Testament references. There's lots of metaphor. Um, If you've read any portion of the book of Revelation, you know this, right? You're reading along. You're like, what in the heck is happening here? Now, here's what we can know for sure. The symbols and metaphors given to us in apocalyptic, prophetic passages of scripture. They cannot mean something to us that they never could have meant to the author and original audience. So identifying those symbols and metaphors with things that are exclusive to our modern world, it's like people saying Puff the Magic Dragon is like, is, is, is about marijuana smoking. It's ridiculous, right? So when people read Revelation and they are like, oh, well, that's talking about barcodes, or that's talking about the COVID vaccine. Or, oh my goodness, that symbol is, is referring to a particular American president. Oh my word, you guys. No. No. That is just sloppy, garbage hermeneutics. Now, it gets a lot of clicks. It sells a lot of books. It fills up a lot of conferences. But it is not sound Bible interpretation. It's just not. Because the Bible cannot mean something to us that it never would have meant to the original audience. Now, another place, um, I see this happen a lot, and and I used to be guilty of this, um, is with Genesis chapter 1. Now, chances are, if you grew up in a, you know, typical American evangelical church, anytime you heard any preaching on Genesis chapter 1, it was all about, like, the origins debate, right? Um, It was all about refuting, you know, modern scientific theories of evolution or the Big Bang or whatever. So it's all very like science oriented. And that's because we are post-enlightenment science-minded people. We, it's, it's the air we breathe. We can't think of things any other way. So what we do is we take all of our science and we impose it on Genesis chapter one without any regard for the fact that the original author and audience of that passage had no knowledge whatsoever of our modern science, right? Science is not what that chapter is about, you guys. It's not about precisely how God created the world. It's about who did it and why he did it. So that's another example of how, like, if we fail to remember that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us, when we fail to do the work of of thinking critically about the context of the original audience, we can get really off base to the point that we make people feel like if they don't believe in a literal six-day creation, they don't believe in a young earth, well, then they can't possibly believe in the Bible and therefore cannot possibly be a Christian. This is, this is terrible because that's 
flat out not true. That is an erroneous view that comes from a really bad um, interpretation, a really bad hermeneutical method for understanding what the Bible is saying and and what the significance is. And so this is just, I, I cannot even, like I can't overemphasize how important this is. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this basic assumption that the Bible was written for us, but was not written to us. Um, we'll unpack that a little bit more in the next episode because it's just so foundational, so important. Well, thanks so much for hanging with me. Bye, guys.